The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well on what seems to finally be the beginning of fall. I'm excited about that. Hope you are too. If not, wait just a couple days and it'll probably change back to something more preferable for you. Um, We have been in a series in the book of Jonah. This is now our fourth week covering this book. We've got, uh, we'll spend all day today in chapter three. And then we probably have potentially one of the most interesting chapters in all of the Bible um, next week as we look at Jonah chapter four. And so uh, I'm interested to dig in, to see what the Spirit has to teach us about uh, interesting topics, interesting perspective that Jonah has uh, regarding um, kind of the, what, what we'll talk about today. And so I invite you to, to join us for that. So we've been discovering in the book of Jonah that God is a gracious God who relentlessly pursues his sinful people. Right, And so that's been kind of a common theme we've discovered each and every week in the text. He's, he's used all sorts of ways and means to continue to pursue us, but he's continuing and very gracious in his pursuit of us. And so we've been discovering this truth through both the study of the book of Jonah as well as hearing some stories uh, from some people that are connected at Missio uh, about the ways that God has pursued them. And so this morning we're going to hear uh, from Pastor Justin. Justin is one of our uh, pastors at Missio. Uh, he sits uh, as one of our advisory elders uh, at Missio West. Him and I get to participate in a, a church planning board uh, together, and he is a church planter that just got approval from Acts 29 after uh, an 18-month assessment process that'll be planting a church uh, in the near future, and I'd love to hear uh, his story, because I haven't heard it. The guy that makes the videos was out of town all week, and so I haven't even heard it, and so I'm excited for you to hear it and for myself to hear it. So take a look at the screen and hear Justin's story about how God has pursued him. I got saved my junior year of high school, and instantly I knew that that was nothing of myself. The moment, the time, the response was completely supernatural, and I knew God had done something in me to cause me to begin to hate my sin and love Jesus. I graduated high school and was uh, pursuing ministry. I knew from the time that I had gotten saved, God was calling me into some type of ministry. I went to a small little Bible college in Columbus and it didn't work out for me well. I, I lasted about a semester for all kinds of reasons, my own immaturity my own misunderstandings of what ministry was. And so I moved back home and I found myself trying to find a new church home. And I found one uh, close to my mother's house and I began attending and I began creating wonderful relationships through the youth group and through the leaders of the youth group there. And I was growing in my walk with Christ. I was growing in my understanding of the Bible and what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. But all of a sudden, one day, my world kind of got rocked when one of the key youth leaders that I really admired and looked up to uh, disqualified himself from ministry by having a relationship with a girl in our youth group. 
And it shattered a lot of people's lives in that moment. And the way that I responded to it was kind of just being done with this whole Christian thing. So I decided that I was going to reindulge in my former life before I had even known who Jesus was. I got my stuff together, I moved to Dayton, and I began pursuing the party scene. I found myself entrenched in promiscuity and substance abuse. But the whole time that I was there, I knew God had not stopped chasing me down. I would have conversations about Jesus and who he was and what he had done for me in the midst of these reckless party atmospheres. My phone would dial people from my old church in my pocket and they would hear the conversations and they would hear the language I was using and the party scene that I had found myself in. But the whole time they said they would just pray for me while the phone dialed them. We finally find ourselves in this moment of time where I had gotten a Bible and I started reading the scriptures again. I started trying to pray and understand who Jesus was and this whole time I felt this conviction, I felt this sense of God's love was greater for me than my rejection of who he was. And God used my now wife Katie as the final um, kind of catalyst to bring me back to him. She came into my life and uh, she pursued me through um, just loving me where I was at. She came and visited me in my apartment. She would come and spend time with me and she would demonstrate Christ's love and she would speak truth to my situation. And I finally was able after a year of running away from him to move back home and start going back to church, start living a life that glorified him and start pursuing Katie so that we could be married. God used that whole moment in time with her to bring me back to a faithful walk with him, uh, to caused me to pursue marrying her, and uh, even now today to set me up to be able to fulfill that call of ministry that I knew I had felt my junior year of high school. I praise God for his faithfulness and his unrelenting pursuit of a sinner like me. All right, hopefully these uh, stories from, from real people have, have been able to connect the message to in a way that you can apply to your life and look back on your life and see the hand of God moving um, in your circumstances. Turn with me to Jonah chapter number three. Jonah chapter number three. And we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. It's only 10 verses. Uh, there's some pretty interesting things. I wanna talk about just the, the briefly at the beginning, the parallels between Jonah chapter one, verse one through three, and Jonah chapter three, verse one through three. Talk a little bit about broad themes that we see throughout the text and then bring it uh, down to just something that's really applicable for us and our everyday lives. Jonah chapter three, verse one through 10, you can read with me uh, on your device, in our notes app, or uh, the words will be up on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along that way. Word of the Lord says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey in, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did it not. This is the word of the Lord. God, help us to uh, rightly divide and apply the truths of your word this morning. Uh, Again, like I said, the first three verses of chapter three look incredibly, incredibly similar, almost an equal parallel to the first three verses of chapter one. Some of the the similarities would include uh, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, right? Jonah chapter one, verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This, This chapter two, or chapter three, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Both of times where Jonah was instructed to arise, both times he was instructed to go to Nineveh, both times he was instructed to call out against it, both times Jonah arose to go somewhere, right? We know the first chapter, Jonah arose in disobedience and fled to Tarshish, uh, boarded the boat and uh, encountered that storm. The notable differences would be in chapter three, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Chapter one, called against Nineveh for their evil that has come before God. God's very direct in in his order, in his message to what should he go to Nineveh and say. In chapter three, called against Nineveh with a message that God tells Jonah. He says, go and I'll, I'll prepare you with a message when the time is right. Chapter one, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Chapter three, his response is quite different. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. The Bible says, according to the word of the Lord. In Genesis, or in Jonah chapter number one, we see his obedience and the effect that his disobedience has on the sailors. Chapter three, we see a different narrative. We see Jonah's obedience and the effect that his obedience will have on the Ninevites. And so as we examine this text, I want us to first draw our attention to, within the first few verses, God's patient grace. God's patient grace. The word of the Lord, as it says here in Jonah chapter number three, verse one, came to Jonah a second time. A second time. This is interesting to me. I, I am a huge sucker for a comeback story, right? Like the, 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 those who have fallen from uh, grace or public eye for sometimes just really despicable and horrible things and, and, and through circumstances are kind of restored back to uh, that place. Uh, I love those. I, I think the, the win the other night for the Cleveland Browns, although I'm not a Cleveland Brown fan, and I know that's gonna irritate some of you that I'm not a fan. It's gonna uh, irritate some of you that I'm even talking about the Browns here in our beloved Cincinnati. Um, but they won, right? I love hearing that. 
Like, I love hearing that. I, I don't like the Browns, don't confuse that. But I love hearing that, man, a, a, a team that has just been marked by so much loss is finding a way to put together some games and win. Another thing that's kind of timely um, is, is the, the resurrection of sorts of Tiger Woods in the golf world. Uh, several years ago, he lost a ton of his sponsorship, was banned for some pretty horrific behavior, right? Nothing that we would model for our kids and, and set him up as a, as a person that uh, should be followed necessarily. But in the world of golf, he was at his, at his best and, and it was just a slow decline to the point where injury and life circumstances and his sinfulness had had him in a place where he could no longer even play the game, right? I, I think it was just a couple weeks ago uh, where uh, his, his Instagram page or somebody posted a video uh, from one year ago of him chipping in his backyard and it's, the caption said something to the extent of, I got the okay from the doctor to, to start chipping in the backyard again, right? And this week he is poised uh, to take home the tour championship in the last uh, uh, last tournament of the season. And like, there's that, that there's a sense of this comeback that has been exhilarating and exciting uh, to watch, right? And so in Jonah chapter three, we get a, a bit of a sense of this, this God who's extremely patient in the way that he extends us his grace. The Jonah who, who made a terrible call, obviously, in, in Jonah one, is now having uh, a chance to, to come back. Right? There's, there's the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And as I look through the course of my life, I spent much time this week and last week as we were preparing this sermon, thanking God for the multitude of second and third and fourth and fifth and so on chances that God in his grace has extended me. And so I wanna invite you this morning and throughout this week to do the same. How has God shown you his patient grace throughout the course of your life where you've received those second and third and fourth chances? It kind of coincides with Justin's story, a life of obedience that was uh, broken and, 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 and torn apart by life circumstances, honestly out of his control, and how God continued through, the, 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 through his people to pursue him and restore him back to his service has been a consistent theme all throughout Scripture. And so we see here in Jonah 3, like the good part of it. Right, Jonah gets a bad rap, uh, Jonah chapter one, Jonah chapter two, it's like, yeah, you're desperate, but man, you, you were one breath from death, so calling out to God isn't a huge deal in that moment. But Jonah three, we can, in, in Jonah three, we can find some things to be excited about for Jonah. What are some ways that God has shown you grace in giving you multiple chances to turn from your disobedience to obedience? What is your comeback story? of sorts. In this, we see that God is a gracious and patient God, one who continues to pursue his people and, all, and will restore them to his service for the accomplishment of his purposes. Jonah had been to the bottom just, just a, a, a chapter before and had experienced God's grace. And then and only then was he able and prepared to go in obedience to declare the truths of God's word. Right? And so in the life of Jonah, 
in the life wrecked by disobedience, wrecked by sinfulness, brought very low to the point of death as a result of his direct disobedience to God, we see that God in his relentless pursuit of Jonah is still willing, able, and ready to use him for his service. Man, that gives me tremendous hope this morning. I hope it gives you hope this morning as we understand that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. And that is all of our stories and that is our only chance. And so we we come here thankful for the good and gracious and patient love of God that continues to pursue us. Second thing I'd like for us to see in our text this morning is God's purposed grace. God's purposed grace. What gives me confidence, uh, what builds into the confidence that I already have through many other means in God's word is that he accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish, right? Jonah chapter one, it was go to Nineveh and cry out against it uh, for their evil. Jonah two, Jonah, rest of Jonah one, Jonah runs from that. Uh, a, A form of events happened to get Jonah back to that bottom where he does cry out for God and re, is seen to kind of repent in some ways and come back to God to accomplish his purposes. And God's love and God's heart for the Ninevites, despite Jonah's disobedience, despite Jonah's self-righteousness and, and careless uh, attitude towards the Ninevites, people that he had written off as evil and unworthy of God's mercy, God, even through a second chance offered to Jonah, continues to accomplish his purpose in declaring his truth to the Ninevites. It's an amazing story. We see in God's purpose grace that nothing falls out of God's sovereign rule. We've seen the use of nature. We've seen the use of a great fish. We've seen the use of unbelieving sailors. And even the disobedience of Jonah himself being used to accomplish God's purposes of redeeming sinners and restoring them, right? That's our story. That's Jonah's story. That's the Ninevite story. That's the sailor's story. And Jonah, now in confidence of God's word, goes to Nineveh in our text this morning and declares God's message. It's an interesting message. It's a message that doesn't seem like it's, it's full of much hope. It seems pretty condemning. But I want us to see that just as Jonah's disobedience brought chaos to the sailors' lives. Jonah's obedience brings blessing to the lives of the Ninevites. And so as we walk in obedience to the purposes and the plans and the promises of God, our families' lives are blessed. Our neighbors' lives are blessed. Our lives are blessed. There is this this, uh, sending of God's grace through us to unbelieving and surrounding people around us that may not have the opportunity to experience God's grace. And so we ask the question, is it your disobedience that is affecting your neighbors poorly or your obedience that is affecting them for good? Is it your disobedience that has has a negative effect on your neighbors or is it your, your obedience that is having a positive effect on your neighbors for their good? The Ninevites hear this interesting message of God and they believe it. They believe God, the text says, and they begin responding in repentance. The message reaches the greatest to the least 
uh, this message of just eight English words and five Hebrew words that doesn't sound very positive at all as Jonah, uh, just a day's journey into Nineveh, cries out for all to hear. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word spreads quick. As just a day into the city, the word even quickly reaches the king. My guess is Jonah starts declaring it and the word starts spreading. And it finally reaches the ear of the king of Nineveh. And this king sends out a decree. People are responding uh, by wearing sackcloth and ashes. What, what's the significance of that? In the Old Testament, that was a form, formal way to outwardly express the mourning and the grieving that you were experiencing. In this instance, it was a mourning and a grieving over their evil, over their sin. They were wrecked by the truth of God's word that Nineveh would be overthrown to the point that they began being grieved by the, the realities that brought on God's judgment. They were concerned and convicted of their sin. The king sends out a decree for a fast and they begin calling out to God with hopes that God would relent and turn from his fierce anger so that they wouldn't perish as Jonah had declared and given them 40 days to live. As we read through the text, God did in fact relent of this disaster that he said that he would do to them. I want us to see that this isn't a, this isn't a, a changing necessarily of God's purposes. This is in fact God's intended and purposed use of his grace. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a common theme that God sends a prophet with a word of judgment to a specific people. If people do not turn away from their evil, God people, sends people with a word of judgment if people decide not to turn away from their evil. And when people respond with obedience, the consequences are withheld. And when people respond in disobedience, they receive the consequences that they are due. And so God's word, we can come through this text, we can come with confidence that in God's grace, he pursued Jonah a second time. He sent his word to him a second time. He sent him into Nineveh, this time with a word that seems very condemning, but delivered. And God accomplishes his purposes through it. And so I want us to see and summarize this text this morning as this. God's word always accomplishes God's work. God's word always accomplishes God's work. Isaiah chapter number 55, verse 11, the Bible says this. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, right? And so as we understand the, the, the truthfulness of God's word, the, the dependability of God's word, and, and receive these promises of Isaiah 55 and Jonah number three, because of these promises, we can proclaim God's truth with full confidence that he is able to complete the work that he is and has called us to participate in with him. There's a confidence that comes from the proclamation and declaration of God's word because we see in it that God's pursuit of Jonah, of the Ninevites, of the sailors, and of us is accomplished through the proclamation of his word. 
God is faithful to pursue his people, and the way he pursues his people is the faithful proclamation of his word. That's why opening up the scriptures and spending time in them are so important. That's why being in a community where you can dialogue and grow together in your understanding of God's word and how it applies to your life is important. That's why Sunday morning gatherings are of utmost importance so we can hear the proclaimed truths of God's word and be given the opportunity to respond in obedience. And so that's why we gather. Like Jonah, we are called to proclaim the truths of God's word. Like Jonah, the message that we are called to proclaim oftentimes can be very difficult, uh, both difficult to say and difficult to hear. And so as we examine some of, the, some of the things that go on in our heart, in our mind, we wanna understand what are some of the things that keep us from declaring hard truth, right? Because all of us, all of us love to talk about the love of God. All of us love to talk about the mercy of God. All of us love to talk about the joy that God has brought into our life, but we cringe sometimes at the thought of declaring judgment of God, wrath of God, uh, punishment of God. And we can't look at God and, 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 and dis dissect his, his love away from his judgment or his love away from his mercy because all throughout scripture and all throughout our history, we see that his love is put on display sometimes most clearly in his judgment. Right? And so if God is love, we can't define what that love looks like. If God is wrath, we can't define what that wrath looks like. And so we have to come to the word of God to understand what God is like and then proclaim even the hard messages that God gives us to proclaim faithfully with obedience. Sometimes that can be really, really, really challenging, can't it? I, you, if you know me, you know that, uh, man, I, I, if I'm spending time with you, I wanna be, I wanna be liked I wanna be received and accepted. I think we all do. Nobody's, nobody's sitting across from the table with somebody and saying, man, I hope what I tell them leaves them hating me at the end of this conversation. Right? Nobody, I mean, I'm hoping that nobody does that. I certainly am one that does not. And difficult conversations are challenging for me. And this week I've had to engage in several difficult conversations that, that had major implications on, on somebody's life, somebody's ministry, in a work of, of church planning that's happening around our city. And it was difficult and it was challenging, but in those moments, I got to understand a little bit more about the heart of God and, and, and saying things sometimes that are necessary and are needed to be heard, but are hard to say and extremely hard to hear. And so what are some of those reasons that, that it's so hard for us to be the bearer of bad news? It's so difficult to talk through the hard conversations with people. I, I, I assessed my own life and tried to think through this and some of the things that we see uh, throughout the story of Jonah. I came up with several that we'll move through fairly quickly. I think one hurdle becomes acceptance, right? Acceptance. We, we can uh, very easily fall into the trap of fearing what man might think about us and what man may say about us and what man may do in response to us, that our fear of them dwarfs our fear for God. And so in those moments where we know God through the Spirit has given us something to say that might even be harsh for the sake of them accepting us, we kind of we bow out or we disengage or we know we need to say the hard thing. We're unwilling to say it. 
For some of us, it's just apathy, right? It's a lack of care for unbelieving people, lack of conviction that you, as a believer, are called and responsible for declaring the good news of the gospel, but you can't have the good news of the gospel without a faithful proclamation of the bad news that the gospel brings, right? The gospel is at its heart good news, but the good news is that God rescued us. The bad news is that we needed to be rescued. Right? There's sinfulness that has invaded and crept in and overtaken our lives that has left us separated from God. And without an act of God, we can't and won't find our way to God. Right? That's the bad news of the gospel. And the good news only is good news in light of the bad news. And so as we proclaim truth, as we proclaim difficult things, as we proclaim the gospel, we must be faithful to the bad news and the good news that people understand the good news in light of their sinfulness. Some of us may be difficult for us to say or hear hard truth because of ability, right? We may not feel as if you know exactly what to say. And this may feel as if there is tremendous pressure on you to, to have the right words, to know the right thing, to understand the right timing. Right? And we see in the narrative of Jonah that obedience was commanded and demanded of God, but he didn't send them with the message, did he? He says, go to Nineveh, call out against it with the message that I will give you. And so all the words weren't figured out, all the directions weren't accomplished, which for me drives me absolutely nuts because I want everything in a proper order. I wanna know my next step. I wanna know what I'm saying. I wanna be prepared. I don't wanna be caught off guard. I don't wanna try to think well on my feet in the moment. But sometimes that's the very situations that God calls us to, as we see here in Jonah. In obedience, Jonah goes not out of a love for the Ninevites, not out of a a heart of compassion for people that uh, were going to experience God's impending judgment and doom, really out of a duty, uh, kind of a half-hearted obedience to go and be faithful to what he wasn't faithful just one chapter or two chapters ago, right? And so we see ability. And so we, we think about, man, we don't know how the gospel applies in every area of life. We don't know exactly what to say to our, our, our friend that's steeped in this sin. We don't know what to say to this family member that's battling this addiction. We, we don't have words, and so we escape back to not saying anything. Not saying anything. Unwilling to say things that might be difficult for us to say. Another way is makes it difficult for us to say and hear difficult truth is spiritual activity. Spiritual activity. Some of us substitute or feel as if we're substituting the other ways that we serve. And we, man, we faithful to serve and we serve on this team and we serve on three teams and man, we give lots of money to the church and we're faithful to do these things. And sometimes we can create these as substitution for declaring the gospel of Jesus to an unbelieving world. I've got to fight this all the time because a lot of my time is wrapped up in an office, in an office setting where other people are pastors and believers. And so when I get out into the world around unbelieving people that need to hear the difficult truths that the gospel proclaims, sometimes I, I retreat a little bit. I'm a pastor, God, I'm serving you uh, with 60 and 70 and 80 hours a week. Do I really need to be concerned about the soul of the person standing behind the cash register? 
right? And so we do that in self-righteousness. We say, hey, we, we're doing our duty. We're putting all these things in line. And so uh, I'm gonna take a pass on what you've called me to in declaring a hard truth to a people that don't wanna hear it oftentimes because I'm already doing other things. And then lastly, sometimes it's hard to say and hear difficult things because we live in a bit of a functional atheism. A functional atheism. Let me explain what I mean by this. Many of us have created a life for ourselves where we don't need God. Right, with our mouth, we declare that we believe in him. We may come to church, we may drop some money in the bucket, we may serve on a team, we may be heavily involved, but in, in really all aspects of our life, we've created such a life for ourselves that God is just an add-on, he's not a necessity, right? And so, then, so we, don't have to, we don't have to, in desperation, come and pray to him. We don't have, in desperation, look to the community of believers to, to help us out and pick us up and set us on a right course. And for some of us, we get to a place where, in reality, we don't really truly believe the gospel. We don't believe that it's the power of God for salvation. And some of us display this by the reality that we're still trying to make our own attempts at overcoming our own sin. And so because we're trying so hard and we're working so hard to be better people absent of God, other people should just do the same. They should pick themselves up. They should go get a better job. They should do all the things that we're doing to better themselves. And essentially, we're saying that we don't believe the gospel. And so we should do it. We've done it this way. Everybody else should do it the same. Or we believe that God is empowered enough to save unbelieving sinners. We used to care and we used to be concerned about our neighbors. We used to be concerned about our family members. But over time, we've just, we've just come to the conclusion that God isn't going to do what God said he's going to do. And so he's not powerful enough to overcome the sinfulness of their hearts. So I'm going to quit proclaiming the truth to them. And so in your mind, in your heart, you feel as if the gospel isn't bringing you hope in the areas of your unbelief. So you begin to doubt its power for bringing hope to the areas of unbelief of the people around you, right? And so we, we man, I gotta fight this too, and sometimes we get so much a part of this life of a Christian that we believe, man, we believe, we believe, we believe all these things, but then a circumstance hits our life, and we get completely wrecked by it. And all of a sudden, the hope that we had is gone. All of a sudden, those areas of our life where we were strong believers of God, we find tremendous unbelief. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if, if that unbelief drives you to a point of desperation to cry out for a God that you knows that, know that can rescue. It's a bad thing if that unbelief causes you to run from God, right? And so we see Jonah desperate in chapter two, propelling him towards this, this obedience in chapter three, where he comes into this city of people that he hates, and he declares something that's hard to both say and hear. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. He'll experience the judgment of God. Doesn't tell them to repent. Doesn't tell them to turn to Jesus. Doesn't offer any hope, right? And so unlike Jonah, unlike Jonah, those are some ways we're like Jonah. Unlike Jonah, though, 
we can have confidence in the truths of God's word and the, and the truth of the gospel that we aren't calling people to a hopeless repentance. We aren't calling people to respond to judgment uh, by doing the things necessary to, to be relinquished from that judgment solely. We're not just declaring the, the bad news of death by God's judgment as a result of our sin, but we also get to declare the good news of the resurrection of Jesus and the massive implications that Jesus' resurrection has for our everyday lives. And so in the gospel, we see that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is our hope, that God will turn away his wrath for those who believe. And so we don't, have to come, we don't have to come to this text and think, man, why would God uh, uh, cause impending judgment on the city of Nineveh just for their evil? What kind of God would, would do that? And so we see that God's, God's wrath isn't just, just wasted. God's wrath isn't just uh, turned uh, around. God's wrath is put on somebody else so that it can be taken away from us. And that person is Jesus. And as Jesus came, he was buried in a tomb, taking on all of our sin, all of our consequences, all of our condemnation. He was buried, and with it, so was our sin in Christ. Resurrection, our, our inability uh, to, to be uh, partnered and in relationship with God and be moved by the Spirit, all that changes as Jesus resurrects from the dead. And God turns away his wrath, even from his son that he just poured it out on. He can turn it away from us. The death of Jesus is evidence that God's wrath has been poured out. God's wrath has been poured out. We didn't escape it. It was misdirected, or it was directed, redirected. We didn't escape it. God's wrath was poured out. It just wasn't poured out on us because of our faith. It was poured out on Jesus. And then the resurrection of Jesus becomes evidence that God's wrath has been turned away and will be turned away from all who believe. You and I can come to this message, come to this talk about proclaiming hard truth with hope because of the finished work of Jesus. Through the power of the Spirit, we can extend hope through declaration of God's impending judgment, but also the declaration that God's judgment was poured out on Jesus so that it doesn't have to be poured out on us or those around us. Guys, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, let us be faithful to tell people about their hopelessness and their despair apart from a life living by faith, following Jesus. But if they turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus, they have life, they have freedom, they have joy, right? Good news is only good news in light of the bad news. We have the responsibility to call everyone around us. The Gospel of Mark uses the language, all creatures to faith and repentance in Jesus. And if we have that promise, and we also have that promise throughout God's word that as we call people to faith and repentance in Jesus, turning away from their sin towards following Jesus, we have the promise that those who respond in obedience will have eternal life. Those who come to Jesus seeking eternal security, seeking salvation, seeking relationship with him will not be turned away. And so let that build confidence 
in us and the boldness that we can take this message that may be difficult, that may be hard to say, may be hard for those around us to hear, but let us say it with all the confidence in the world that faith in Jesus radically changes their life. We need to proclaim that to them. This brings assurance, and assurance brings comfort as God's left the Holy Spirit to both assure the seal that has been made of Christ's blood, redeeming us from our sin, and provide comfort for the hard times, the difficult times. How do we respond to this? I want us to first think about this. Communion brings clarity to God's message. Communion brings clarity to God's message. I'll explain what I mean. Sometimes the, the most difficult thing in, in proclaiming God's truth is how do we know what to say? How do we know what to say? Where will the boldness come from to speak even the hard truths? Can God use me in his purposes? I, I, I feel like maybe we as, as leaders in the church haven't done a great job of, of teaching you guys how the gospel applies to the everyday of life. You know, in community or at a coffee shop as we're having conversation with people and somebody hits us with just something catastrophic in their life, all we can say is we're praying for you. That's good. There's hope in the proclamation of God's word. And so we pray for them, but we tell them the truths of the gospel how their identity is secure in Christ. And if they place their faith in Christ, he will provide them hope and freedom and life, right? And so we, sometimes I think we use that. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for anybody here in a second. I'm gonna tell you to pray for people. I'm saying sometimes in those moments, the answer to prayer is the person sitting across the table that knows the truths of God's word. Just will they be obedient to share them or will they be disobedient and shy away from sharing them, right? Communion brings clarity to God's message. Acts chapter number four, verse seven through 13, we'll read about an interaction that some of the apostles have with some religious leaders in Jerusalem following the, uh, their efforts, to, uh, following their, their success at healing or seeing the power of the Spirit heal this man. We'll pick up reading in chapter four of Acts, verse seven through 13. And it says, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people, the elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? And he says, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel. And this is where, man, they talk about some, some boldness and some confidence in the truth of God's word. Peter begins to just rebuke them extremely openly. Verse 10, he says, be it known on all you and to all the people of Israel but that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone, which talking about Jesus, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then the, the leaders, the religious leaders respond with, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. What'd they marvel at? 
and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And so in the face of difficult conversations, in the face of proclaiming hard truths to hard people, in, in, in the face of being a broken person who is trying to speak out to broken people knowing that I haven't got all the answers or I haven't figured everything out, but I know that Jesus has and does. We need to see that communion brings clarity to God's message, both communion with Jesus, communion with Jesus. We need to be known and be uh, challenged and, 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 and consistent people who have spent time with Jesus. So we do need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerful to know Jesus because Jesus is the word of God. And as we know Jesus, we know his word. As we know and learn uh, uh, from his word, we know and learn of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was the one that came and declared, hey, you guys that are searching for me and searching for things that aren't around, uh, I'm right in front of you. You're searching the scriptures for me. I'm standing in front of you. And it's those scriptures that bear witness and reveal me. Right, And so as we spend time with Jesus, we, we, uh, God brings clarity to the message, the hard truths, the difficult things, the gospel that he wants us to declare to the people around us. And as we spend time with Jesus, we're, we're given boldness, we're given clarity to do and to know what to say when we're in those circumstances. Right, And so we need to consistently live a life as people who have spent time with Jesus we also need to have communion with people. We need to have communion with people. We need to be present with them. We need to be present with them. Knowing, engaging, and learning how the gospel applies to their lives. What is, what is it that they are looking to as a functional savior, right? We need to assess those things, and that only comes through time spent with them. What is this person putting their hope and their identity and their security in? And then what is hell for that person? Right, these are good things that I try to go in. What is a functional savior for you? What is a functional hell for? For instance, a single person, oftentimes in conversation, it gets steered this way. Uh, somebody that's, that's at, at a point of desperation where they're, they're struggling, they're, they're, they're finding it extremely difficult not to be married, desiring to be married. Right, and in conversation early on, you can kind of reveal, man, the, their functional savior becomes a boyfriend or a girlfriend, where their life would be changed. They would have joy, they would find security, they would, they would have hope if they had a boyfriend. Their function, functional hell is a life alone, right? And so in those moments, as you assess and understand these things by spending time with people, you can step in and apply the gospel in a way that speaks to the everyday of their real life. And you can say, man, you're, you're putting your hope in a person that at his best or at her best will disappoint you day in and day out because your hope cannot be in a person unless that person is Jesus. And so point, put your hope, put your faith, put your life in the hands of Jesus. Let him direct your paths. Live in confidence that he knows what he's doing. He'll bring you the desires of your heart in his timing as it meets his purposes. Communion with people, communion with Jesus, bring clarity to God's message. Second thing is this, preach for concern that brings conviction. Preach boldly. 
God, as we, as we look and we hear of Jonah preaching this impending doom that's 40 days away, we live in the reality that we don't, we don't have those kind of timelines. We don't know what people's life circumstances have them. We don't know uh, when Jesus returns. Like we don't, we don't know these things. And so our time's limited. And so with the time that we do have, let us preach with clarity, having spent time with God and having spent time with people, but let us speak boldly in a way that brings concern and pray desperately that that concern turns into conviction, that the Spirit of God would convict them of their needs through the faithful proclamation of the words that he's given us to say so that their eternity isn't spent in a separation from God, right? We love the people around us, love our family members, we love our friends, and if we love our friends, let's speak to them with a heart of concern, praying that God would convict their hearts as we speak hard, difficult truths, that the reality is the things they're placing their security in will fail them. Only Jesus will satisfy their souls. Only Jesus will bring salvation. Thirdly is this, pray for confession that brings comfort. Pray for confession that brings comfort. As we seek the Holy Spirit, pray that God would illuminate the hearts and minds of people to turn from their wickedness and put their faith in Jesus, right? That through, uh, through the indwelling of the Spirit as a result of their faith in Jesus, that the Spirit would provide comfort, right? We run so quickly to things to try to ease, ease this tension that our unbelieving friends and family and neighbors live in. It's like we have the hope. The hope is the gospel. The gospel is bad news that they're dead and without hope in their sin, but good news that Jesus came in their place, took their sin, laid down his life so that they could have life. Tell them that. Believe that today. Invite the band back up. I'm going to quickly lead us in a time of response this morning. I'm going to pray for us before we do that. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for uh, clarity in your word. Help us to be proclaimers of, of the hard truths of your judgment, but not without hope because we have hope and we've experienced the hope of the gospel. Jesus coming to this earth, walking amongst human beings, living a perfect life, taking on our sin and enduring the wrath of God so that you and I, so that we could be free from the weight and the condemnation and the judgment of God's wrath. Help us to remember that anew, pray that it would excite a new fervency in our lives to declare those truths to the people around us and that we wouldn't cower, we wouldn't run, but in obedience we would step in and say the difficult things to those around us. We need your grace to do it. Amen.